0: I'm going to go ahead and jump in. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Colossians 1. And listen, if you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one because you don't have one or you don't like it much because of the translation or whatever reason, we have them for free out here on the table. Just grab one and go, and uh, you own it. I can't think of any other announcements besides that. So, well, good. Now, if you're new here, you notice we just did one song in the beginning. The reason we do that, just so you know, is we try to posture, our worship through song and through the communion towards the end of the service. That's a little on its head from probably what you're used to, but what that does is it gives us an opportunity to respond to God, respond to a challenge given to us, respond to something that He might have started in our heart during the process of just hearing the Word, of reading the Bible, and I hate it. I mean, for years and years I would have God really do something in my heart, and I would be actually very excited about it, then be very quick to go meet with my friends and then go eat somewhere, you know? And I mean, regardless of my best attempts, it's very difficult to recapture that moment. It is. It's not impossible. It's just difficult. And so we wanted to kind of flip things a little bit to give you a better opportunity to do any kind of work you needed to with God. So I know if you've been here more than once, you've heard that, but I thought it was worth mentioning again. So here we go. Colossians 1. I'm excited about this. Verses 1 through 2. And no, we won't just do two verses every time we do this, okay? I know that was the first thing that you guys were probably going to think. But I wanted to introduce the book to you today. Um, I think that that's a very important part of the process. And this is it. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father. This is just the introduction. This is just Him saying who He is, who He's writing to, and just basically greeting them like we would greet each other. Um, It's still standard in letters today. It's nothing really crazy, out of the box, nothing real provocative about these two verses. Um, But you know, before I even jump in, I have to tell you why why we do expositional preaching. That's a long word. Expositional preaching is just where a pastor will let a passage in the text drive the message. Right? He unpacks it, gives you the background story, but it is the foundation and the anchor stone behind everything that is preached that day. It's very important to us. Even though this is the first time we've gone through a book from first verse to last verse, we've always been an expositional church. Exposition doesn't mean going through a book. You can be expositional in a passage, in a key passage. And so one of the reasons we do this is for the very fact that it's not up to me. It's not up to my opinions, it's not up to my ideas, my philosophies, it's not based on any of that, or how good my quiet time was that week, or you know, whether I'm doing okay depends on or, or it actually dictates what kind of a message I'm able to bring. The passage, the word of God, is actually the foundation with which we build upon, and that does a lot. I think. Oh yeah, I need to thank you for putting that up there, man. Hey, just so you guys know, that's our Twitter um, hashtag, LegacyQuestions. If you guys have any questions um, during this and you don't feel like raising your hand, and I totally get that. If you don't, you could, if you have Twitter and you have an account, you can go ahead and post it on that. And if you want to text it, you can text it to that. That's a Google voice number, so it'll be anonymous. It scrambles your number when it comes in. It's just the way Google is. So if you want to do that, what we're going to try to do is start to tailor these services to where I can actually do the Q&A live with you. So I'll have the Twitter feed up here with me, and I'll have the phone up here with me, and I'll be able to see the questions as they come in, okay? And we'll be able to kind of do that and be more of a dialogue on the back end. Today, I'm probably just going to have to either answer it on Facebook or put it up on next week, because we just started it, okay? So that's what that is, just to explain that. Um, I think one of the reasons we could be tempted as pastors to not be expositional when we preach, I think it it could kind of seem like as difficult and complicated and as muddy as times and ethics are today, it can be real tempting for a pastor to think that the Bible doesn't really speak to situations today. It can be real tempting to say that I can do a better job of helping you with your marriage or your sexual identity or your addiction or whatever. I can do a better job of that because the Bible is very difficult to draw a line from A to B. So we're going to help out the Bible a little bit. We're going to do some of the lifting for it. We're going to make excuses for it. And it can be very tempting to do that. And a pastor would never just come out and say that. But whenever it rests on the opinions of man before the passage of text, we can get into big trouble with that. I mean, whenever... I'm not even going to say what year this was, but back when PCs were starting to be bought for households, okay? So now, not like the first one, not like you're the first dude on the block to get a PC in your house, but like when they were starting to be like every other house, okay? It's back when there were no apples, alright? So this is all PC, straight up PC, and there no, not even laptops, it'd be just these big desktop units. Very basic, very slow, before the Pentium chip came about, right? We got one. We were one of the families that got one on our block. And they came with three drives. This is really telling you how old I am. They had a three and a half inch floppy drive, which is like this. Then they had a five and a half inch floppy drive, which is like this. Okay? They were huge. And then they might have had a CD ROM if you were very lucky. If you spent extra money, you got a CD-ROM as the third drive. And we got one of these, and I was just a kid, but I knew from school how to work them. So I'm in the, I'm in the kitchen getting something ready to eat, and my dad is in there. <laughs> my dad my dad had a CD-ROM, I guess some sort of an install disc or something, and he was cramming it. Now when I say cram, I mean cram. He was cramming it into the floppy drive, the five and a half inch floppy drive, as hard as he could, and you could hear the crunch from the kitchen. And I, Hear him cussing at it. I can hear him mad at it. And so I go in and say, What are you doing? He goes, I can't get this thing to work. He's all banging on the inner key. He's all just befuddled. He's all just all mad at the thing. I said, Dad, you can't do that. That's not what that's for. And then I push that thing out and it comes out and he goes, I was wondering what that was. I don't know what all this stuff is. He gets frustrated and walks out. And now, is crazy as, and a lot of you are thinking of your dads when I say that, you know, because we all know somebody like that at least. We can kind of. Sometimes we could think that's how God is. We could think that he is the befuddled dad with a white robe on and a big beard and they didn't even have paper so he has some piece of stone that's etched with something important so he walks around, you know, like that. And that's how we think of God. We, we don't think Twitter accounts. We don't think CD-ROMs. We don't think fiber optics. We don't think any of those things. We think old, dated, and distant. And so if we have an idea of God that way, it makes it very difficult for him to speak to us through the passage to really honor it. It makes it difficult, it makes it tough on us. But I do think it does speak very strongly, even as complicated as we are ethically, complicated as we are technologically, I think it speaks very strongly to every single issue that we have today. It's not a gray thing, it is very black, it is very white. It speaks authoritatively. Now it's up to us to do good interpretation, but that's what it's about. It does speak to everything. And to be honest with you, your marriage is on the skids, and you're struggling with some addiction, and you can't figure out if you've got something that's a hobby or an idol, and you're struggling with fear and insecurity, the last thing you want, the last thing you want, is some opinion from some random 35-year-old pastor. It's the last thing you want. It's not going to help your marriage. It's not going to help your addictions, but the Bible will. The Gospel will. The gospel applied to your situation will help you. That is why we are an expositional church. That is one of the biggest, most foundational reasons of why we do things the way that we do things. My pastor, he used to say, Luke, that thing that you depend on, you will always be at the mercy of. And that was a mantra we used to always say to each other. If you depend on it, you'll always be at the mercy of it. Whatever it is. So watch what you lean on. Watch what you depend upon. We are going to depend upon the Word of God to drive what we preach. Because I want to always be at the mercy of that. And not how good my quiet times were that week. Right? Or what books I'm reading that week. The books I read... I mean, you're, gonna, you're coming to hear the Word of God. You're coming to hear what's, what's being said to you by God's mouth. Right? So this is, it's important to us. Another reason we do it is because it draws the line between any passage in the Bible and Christ. This is very important. Every passage in the Bible has something to do with Christ. It aims at Christ. It points to Christ. There, right after Jesus was crucified and raised up, He actually met with two disciples that were walking from one city to another. And these guys are bummed out because they had a lot of stock in this whole Christ thing, and then Christ disappeared and they didn't know what to do. So as they're lamenting back and forth, Jesus appears, but they can't recognize Him. He disguised Himself, right? Right? He's walking with them, and he asks them, Why are you so sad? They tell him, and this is what he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. The things concerning Himself. He was able to pull that out of Genesis, and Leviticus, and Isaiah. Because all of the Old Testament, it points to Christ. The New Testament, it points to Christ. Revelation points to Christ. In Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it points to Christ. What the prophets spoke, it it points to Christ. David and Goliath points to Christ. Ruth points to Christ. The temple points to Christ. Every single thing points to Christ. When we speak expositionally as a church, it gives us the opportunity to do that with you. To point the things rightfully to Christ as they are aimed. So, but why through a book? I mean, if that's expositional preaching, then why through a book? Why are we doing this today with Colossians? I think one of my favorite reasons is it keeps me from avoiding the difficult passages. It keeps me from skipping the hard stuff. Which can be easy to do. It's hard to talk. I mean, if it's, if it's hard to talk to your children about sex, <laughs> how hard do you think it is to talk to an auditorium full of people about it? I mean, it's weird. I mean, whenever you're hanging out with the bros, you don't just start talking about what the doctrine of the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues and all that. You just don't do that very much. It's not just conversations we gravitate towards. It's not any easier for me to talk to you about it. There are some things that are kind of provocative in nature whenever you go through a book, you cannot skip those things. Now, some books are bigger bear traps than others, right? We're starting with Colossians. We're not starting with 1 Corinthians, you know? But when you go through that, you just hit hole after hole after hole. And, it, and it's great. It gives us a chance to tackle the issues. Whenever Paul, whenever the Apostle Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he's letting them know, you'll never see me again. And they're crying. He's crying. These are guys he's been planning churches with. Probably led a lot of them to the cross in His very self. This is one thing He said. And now behold, I know that none of you um, whom I have gone about proclaiming the gospel with will see My face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He did not shrink in declaring the entire counsel of God. This means Beer. This means sex. This means freedom. This means sexual identity. This means all of those things. We're not doing this to be provocative. We're not speaking towards those things to be provocative. But we don't shirk away from the provocative things so that we can be pure to the whole counsel of the Word of God. It's very important to us, right? I also think it also helps. Going through a letter like this, you'll start to see what it looks like to preach through a letter. I mean, Colossians is a letter. It's a letter to a church. Really, to be actually more accurate, it's a letter to a city. All right? It's not a letter to you individually first, it's a letter to a city. All right? So as we read that, we start to see what its role is in the New Testament, how it points to Christ, how all the little passages fit together. That Paul is saying this in chapter 3 because of what he already said in chapter 1. All of it starts to fit together a lot better. It helps you be better students and theologians. It helps you. It helps me to do that. I mean, would it, I mean, in Colossians, there are going to be some passages that you've heard a hundred times. There are going to be some that you won't remember ever reading before. And that's just the way it is. What if you ran into a person that they kept talking on and on and on, they wouldn't shut up about the karate kid. Now I'm not talking about the new cheesy one, I'm talking about the original, all right? The vintage karate kid. And that happens to be one of my favorite movies, so be careful, all right, around me. I think that you could probably fit at least one part of the karate kid in almost every word you preach. Almost. It's like the perfect movie. It has a perfect ratio of every component that you need in a good, successful movie. I love The Karate Kid. I was so excited for the new one to come out, and then I was so let down all at the same. I won't even get into that. But let's just say that you met someone that had a thing for The Karate Kid besides me. But all they talked about was the last fight scene. That's it. The crane kick. And then how all that went. And that's all they talked about. And then when you talk to them about the beginning parts of the movie, they didn't understand it because they never saw it all they did was watch this one little 4 or 5 minute clip in the movie and that was the movie to them that was it how can they really enjoy that crane kick unless you saw Daniel getting tore up in the parking lot unless you saw the, the young love between him and his girlfriend and, and, then, and then the relationship between the mentor and the son and the boat scene where he's practicing how can you even get that how can you even understand that it would frustrate me talking to someone. I'd be like, you don't even get that. You don't even get a vote on why that's a good scene. You don't even get to say that. You have to watch the whole movie first, right? That's what we can do with the Bible sometimes. We could pick one passage and just ramp on it. And talk about how we understand it. And how we love it. And how it applies to our life. <laughs> We've never even read the first three chapters. We couldn't even tell you what the whole purpose of the book is. We can be very guilty of doing that. It helps to go all the way through a book. It's another big reason we do this. So, why Colossians? As we begin with Colossians. So we talked about why we're expositional. We talked about why a book. But why Colossians? I mean, I like Paul here. Paul Paul says this. Can you go back to that very first verse? This is Paul an apostle by an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. So you see Paul is an apostle of Christ, but they didn't vote for him to be an apostle. That's not how it worked. And it's not because he went to school and majored in it and it's not because he was just smarter than everybody. and it's not just because he raised more money than everybody or read more John Piper books. The reason that Paul is an apostle of Christ is because it was by the will of God. It was by God's very hand. it was by God's will that that happened. I love that. I love the authority that that casts over the entire letter. I love that that means that God is speaking to us by His will through a man that He has chosen and selected. I also love how Paul writes books. Paul has a certain MO. He has a certain way that he does things. We're going to get to see it in Colossians. There is something that he does. Whenever Paul talks to people, he does this in all of his letters. So if you see it in Colossians, you'll see it in all of them. Whenever he gives us directions on what to do or on what not to do, it's always tethered to who we are in Christ and what Christ has done. Always. You need to give more. You need to be joyful, sacrificial, consistent givers. But you do it because God was giving Himself to you. You do it because of the extravagant givingness of the cross. It's always tethered to what Christ has done. That is how it works. Usually when Paul does it, he'll take like the first half of the book and talk about what God has done for us, the vertical need. Then the last half of the book he goes into the directive, what you need to do or not do. And that's the horizontal. Portion of the book. Colossians is no different. The first, there's four chapters. The first two are the vertical, what God has done. Now, nerds, me, people like Wes, Jeremy, we call that the indicative. All right? It's a fancy word. I like to throw some fancy words out every now and then. The indicative, what God has done, the vertical indicative. What God tells us to do or not do, it's called an imperative. That kind of makes more sense. We hear that word a lot. Imperative. So the reason this is important, the reason Paul never wants those two things to get too far apart, is because what we do, our imperatives, should always be informed by our indicatives. So whenever you hear a guy like Jeremy, or Wes, or Matt, or somebody else say, you know our indicatives inform our imperatives around here. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. They're saying that what Christ has done for us, makes us informs us, directs us in how we do what we do. If you get those swapped, if you get those swapped, that's legalism. Now you're doing things in order to get something from Christ. You see how important that is? It seems like it's a subtle shift. And in fact, it is a subtle shift. It is of magnitude that I can't describe. It is huge. It's the difference between being locked up in a work system and being locked up in a grace-kissed system of believing God. And so, I love this. This is what Elise Fitzpatrick says. She says, So many of us cavalierly gloss over what He has done, and then we zero in on what we are supposed to do. That shift, though it might seem slight, makes all the difference in the world. Our obedience has its origin in God's prior action. I'm going to say that part again. Our obedience has its origin in God's prior action. And forgetting that truth results in self-righteousness, pride, and despair. I like going through Colossians like this because we're going to see over and over again him linking the vertical indicative with the horizontal imperative. I like seeing this because Paul is going to continually tether together what Christ has done before he tells us what we should do. That's huge. Very huge. Another big reason I like is because it was written to a church plant. Church plants have different problems than mature churches do, right? It's the difference between a baby, a baby's issues, and an adult's issues. Think about how drastic those are. I mean, babies are just pooping in their diapers, you know. I mean, advanced for them is going from, you know, diaper to pull-up to kid potty, right? When you're an adult, it's different, Right? It's cancer and divorce and marriage and employment and retirements and all kinds of things. Not the same problems. Now, whenever you get a bunch of new people from different places in the same room in a new community with new souls, new lives, new disciples, you have a unique set of problems. Very unique. This was written to a unique situation. I like it. Because it smells to me a little bit like a church plant. Right? Babies can't feed themselves. They steal blocks from each other. You know, they don't know how to do community very well. It's difficult. In this situation, heresy was leaking in heresy was seeping into the Church of Colossians. That's very easy for that to happen in a church plant, because in church plants you have deep community. Some of you haven't been here for very long, some of you, this is, might be your first time, but when we started, we started in a living room, so we, we had close ranks. I mean, there was just four of us on a couch, not even a year ago, and so we had close ranks, and so we got really close, really tight, and we're still very close and very tight. Now. What happens is, is if some dude in his living room teaches that Christ has already come back or some crazy heretical thing, and people are too young in the Lord to even spot that as being something dangerous and the community is deep, that crap travels fast. That junk goes downhill really quick. They take it home, they chew on it, they get discouraged, disenfranchised, and they give up on things. And before you know it, they're not showing up to anything anymore, they're not picking up the phone, they're totally distant from community, and it's, a lot of it is because of some heretical thing that was said that the church doesn't even espouse. Heresy can be very damaging in big churches. It could be monumentally devastating in church plants. And Paul was fighting tooth and nail to keep the theology upright in the church of Colossae. That's a lot of the reason this, that is the reason this letter was written. So I like that. I like that. It helps me. helps us today. I think the main point in this whole thing, the main point in this whole letter that we're going to see over and over and over again, is that it establishes that Jesus Christ is preeminent above all things. Now we don't use that word preeminent much anymore. We use the words like king, but preeminent, it doesn't doesn't mean that it's, let me just say what it does mean. Preeminent doesn't negate that other things are important. It just says this is the most important. It doesn't say that other things are are not ranked. Preeminent just means you are the highest ranked. You are above all. There is nothing that can contend for your pinnacle worth. That's what preeminence means. We usually think of things like a king. That's why we say king. That's virtually what it is. Here are some scriptures. Um, yeah, go ahead and throw these up there. Colossians 1.15, this is a good example, and I can't wait to preach on this. Colossians 1.15 says this, "...He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him." I love that. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I mean, it makes it sound like He's pretty important. It makes Him seem preeminent and pinnacle, and that's because He is. I love that passage. Colossians two nine is another one. Go ahead and throw that up there. Another example of what I'm talking about. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of, Of all rule and authority. These are just some key scriptures that talk about the preeminence that we're going to deal with in this book. And we need this. Because in in the early days, as we lay cornerstones to a church like this, (laughs) if there's anything that we need to get right, if there's anything that we lay weight to, it needs to be the fact that Jesus Christ is king over everything, even the good things. Jesus Christ is king even over his own story. Even over the gospel. Jesus Christ is king over community. He's king over church. He's king over everything. He is of preeminence. It's important. Otherwise, we start developing weird things like methods beliefs and philosophies that we expect Jesus Christ to serve because now those things are preeminent rather than having good beliefs, philosophies, and things that serve Jesus Christ, which is the right order. If you get those mixed up, you build an anchor out of something really trashy. If you go look online or if you know any boater or anything like that, what anchors are made of on a boat is it's pretty important. You know, There are always accidents when we lived in Tampa Bay. There are always accidents out in the bay because people having junky anchors. Or anchors that didn't fit the boat or anchors that weren't made properly so they'd lower it and it doesn't come back up or whatever. But if we build A a church where Christ is not preeminent, but some method is, some fad or something like that, it's like building an anchor out of sand. It's not going to make any sense. The waves are going to come. Heresy's going to come. Issues are going to come. Communities are going to be attacked. And we're going to be so adrift, we we can't stop the pressures from coming. We'll be all over the map. It's important that this becomes our anchor. I also like how Colossae is just like Knoxville. This jumped off the page. When it came to what book we were going to start with as a church, for me, this made the biggest difference. It's a lot like Knoxville. Both are in beautiful river valleys. Colossae was in the Lycus River Valley. A lot of other little cities. Laodicea was there. Hierapolis, Ephesus, Galatia. They're all right there clustered together. But it's a beautiful place. Now, Paul had never been there. We're about to read a letter that Paul wrote to a church he'd never seen before. Never been there. He actually wrote this from jail one of his first house arrests. Okay, So we're looking at this beautiful place. Well, Knoxville is in a very beautiful place as well. If you don't believe that, you probably don't like the Karate Kid either. You know, <laughs> But it is. And it makes a difference to how cultures are raised up depending on where they live. There are also hosts of major battle sites. You know, A lot of you know Knoxville has hosted the Civil War. It's actually flip sides. It's been owned by the Union and the Confederacy, swapped back and forth. It's been sieged. You can, if you go downtown to some of the restaurants, you'll see some old black and white photos of the Union army going up and down Gay Street, right? Some of the same buildings are still there. Very historically rooted in battle and warfare, and yes, that does inform the culture, even generations down the road. It does. That's basically what Colossi was. It had the Greek and the Persian wars there in the 5th century. It had seen a lot of warfare. It had felt it and they are actually closer to it than we are the Civil War in some regards. I thought that was interesting. Both of them were former, now you got to hear this word, former, former economic powerhouses. Knoxville is not the economic powerhouse it used to be. It is great in industry, we have a great economy, it's strong. But we used to be more pinnacle and prominent in worth as a city in the state of Tennessee than we have been in the past. You see, back in the day where there were no interstates, there were just rivers and train tracks, right? And so we were a pretty important city because we were manufacturing things, dumping them on the trains, putting them in the boats and sending them out. I don't know if you know this, Knoxville used to be the underwear capital of the world. Did you all know that? (laughs) Look it up. I'm telling you the truth, the underwear capital of the world. I wouldn't even make that up. Because our textile industry was just off the charts. It was huge. Then what happened? Then the interstate happened. Well, then that bypassed the need to be putting things on boats. That was probably the first to go. And then trains were a little bit more of a, a not so necessary deal. And so what happened was it started directing traffic away from something. And now you have, you go on the other side of town, you got a lot of empty textile warehouses, you got a lot of empty big spaces, a lot of broken windows. A lot of addresses with no thing going on, no purpose at all to them at all. And that's a lot what was happening to Colossae. It had these trade routes. It was carrying a large amount of people straight through it. They started beating a path down to some of the other cities. Their dot on the map got smaller. Laodicea's and the others got bigger. It's basically what Knoxville has experienced. I mean we had the World's Fair in in the 80's. I think the early 80's we had the World's Fair. That was pretty much the last two raw as far as big dot prominence on the map. We used to be the state capital. I mean, there were gleaming moments where we were a very prominent city. It has subsided. Now, I mean, they, have, I don't know if anyone's seen the. You can get it on YouTube. The Simpsons episode where Bart and his friends they stole the car and they went to Knoxville to go to the World Fair. Have y'all seen that real episode? They get in the car. They get there thinking they're going to the fair, and it's just tumbleweeds blowing by. And all these posters falling off that say 1984 World's Fair. You know, and they're like, oh, we missed it. We should have done better research, you know. Therefore, it's funny and it's Simpsons. But when they get there, they see the Sun Sphere. It's actually in the Simpsons. And they go up there and it's storing wigs. There's a little wig retail shop at the base. And so they're using that for storage. And when I saw this on YouTube, I thought that's pretty dorky. It's not too far from the truth, though. There's some offices up there, but the rest of it's just empty space. It's just not what it was. It's as great of a city as it is. And listen, I have to say this, because two weeks ago, it sounded like I took a shot at Knoxville, because I talked about how much it stinks at community. And I think it does. I mean, I'm stand by that. I think it stinks at community. I think that's one thing that we have to lead other people in. Um, but I will say, with that statement and what I just said, I also need to tell you, we moved our family here. We love Knoxville. We're selling out to this place. Our team is Kevin and his family and the other families. We love this city. And I think some things that Knoxville does, the world really needs to see on greater extent. I think there are some things that Knoxville has that the rest of the state needs. I think there are some things that Knoxville does better than most. Knoxville has this ability to be very loyal to something. Have you all noticed that? (laughs) Loyal to something. A guard tradition. That's not always a bad thing. Not always a bad thing to guard tradition and to be loyal. I think Knoxville has a a credibility of equipping and sending. And we do that with college students. We do that with football players, artists. It's always been a grassroots breeding ground, a minor league system for artists and musicians. Just has been. A lot of great music, a lot of great art has come from here. Energy, soldiers. I mean, Texas. I mean, Texas and the Alamo had soldiers coming from the Knoxville area. It's done a very good job of exporting excellence, I think. And we hope that it does that in churches as well. We can equip and send churches. I think Knoxville has the market cornered on some very key things, right? But it is not what it was formerly. The dot is smaller than it used to be on the map, as great of a city as it is. So, I love this, though. I love the fact, and some scholars say that Colossae is the most insignificant city that Paul ever addressed. Almost total insignificance. But I love the fact that Jesus Christ came from a very insignificant city, was raised in another very insignificant city. He died on a cross and He rose again and drove a letter to once again another seemingly insignificant city. That here in the year 2011, I could speak to you about God's heart for what we believe and some believe to be not such a significant city as it used to be. I think it's important that we look a lot like Colossae. There was a big blend of people that were there in Colossae. They'd all brought their religions with them. It all brought their cultures with them, their histories with them. You had Judaism there, very legalistic, very self-ascetic. That just means that they would um, deny things. Touch not, enjoy not, eat not, You know, no Texas Hold'em, no beer, anything like that. So they were very legalistic in some of the things that they did. And then you had some very philosophically minded original, th- original thinkers, right? You had the Greeks and the Orients that brought their ideas in. And it just ended up being this big melting pot. A bunch of traditionalists and a bunch of hippies, right? Sounds a lot like Knoxville. I have to say, a bunch of traditionalists and a lot of hippies. And I like that. We have our own forms of blends. We definitely have a Bible Belt culture, don't we? We have a people that grew up really serving Christ. And then you've got this weird little sub-Bible Belt culture of people that had parents that really served Christ, but they've become greatly disconnected with the church. To the point where 84% of them are sitting at home right now. 84% of this city will not attend a church service this weekend. 84%. So you've got this subculture of people that they, they try to earn God's favor so they try not to do too many bad things or they just think that they are okay as God's son because their parents were. And so you have this weird type of culture on top of a Bible Belt culture, right? You also have this very growing, non-traditional, non-Bible Belt culture where many people are not even from this area. Most of this church is not from this area, I would say. I would say Knoxville constituency is growing in this church, but when it started off, it was all of us were for somewhere else. 33% of Knoxville is not even from Tennessee. 33% of Knoxville never grew up in the state of Tennessee. Well, let me tell you, that makes a difference on what's brought into this city. Okay, Did you know that on the campus, there's 18 international groups representing 18 different people groups? Not countries, people groups. Because 100 countries are represented on that campus. Over 100 countries. Let me tell you, that's bringing in a different feel, a different vibe, a different contribution, a different history, a different life, a different religious belief. It's becoming more and more of a melting pot. Here, you've got three Muslim congregations. Knoxville has five Mormon congregations, two Unitarians, one Metropolitan, two Baha'i, and one Buddhist. It's becoming more and more of a melting pot. Here recently, over 6,000 people attended the Pride Fest, which is a celebration of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Over 6,000 people making it the largest Pride Fest in the state's history. The president of that organization said that the attendance is increasing 40% every year. That's a big increase. 40% a year. Knoxville's becoming much more of a blending, melting pot. It's just the way it is. It's just, its you have traditionals, you have your stalwarts, your legalists, and you have a whole lot that aren't. I'd say more that aren't. I mean, just recently, this, is, this cracked me up. Me and Kevin took a trip to Gatlinburg just to pray together and just to kind of go over some church things as elders. And we went, I don't know if you know this about Gatlinburg, there's a very, very high density of Russians. Don't ask me why, I won't be able to tell you. But they're all there. Everyone talks Russian, they sound Russian. I'd say they look Russian, but I don't really know how how Russians look. But I mean, you just know before you assume that they're Russian. And so, when we went to a coffee house, this girl was obviously Russian. She was. So I thought, I just we just we're in a Russian cafe in Gatlinburg. How cornball is that? And then when we walked out, there's this little trinket shop right next to it, and they had this dream catcher, this big dream catcher in the window, and I thought well that's a high Indian persuasion now there's a dream catcher but the beauty beauty of this is is in the middle of the dream catcher it was a rebel flag and I thought you've got to be kidding me so we took our coffee from a Russian only to come out and see a rebel flag dream catcher in Gatlinburg, Tennessee (laughs) it is a melting pot folks I mean it's a blending it's just a big mush of different people what happens a lot of times and I'm almost done what happens a lot of times this this presents a type of society that's called a pluralistic society. If you've never heard that before, a pluralistic society is one where there's a lot of different beliefs. A lot, an array of different beliefs. But it's always this weird understanding that they're all on equal footing and equal standing. Okay? So think of the apocalyptic movies where the president's rah rahing everybody in the end, we're gonna rebuild this planet. You know, pray for your Oh, no more war, no more hate. And then it shows quick clips of people in a Buddhist monastery bowing and chanting, and it's got a pastor speaking to his people, and it's got Indians on a reservation, and it puts as many different people groups as it can up there on an equal footing. That's a pluralistic idea, okay? And that's what you can end up with. And the only thing that pluralism does not tolerate is intolerance. Everything must be on an equal footing. That's what can happen in societies like Colossae and like Knoxville, right? After a while, there starts to be a merging, a gluing, and a combining, over time, over generation, of these different beliefs. They start to overlap. That's called syncretism. We'll be using some of these words as we go through the book. Pluralistic societies will usually yield syncretism. Syncretism is just a long word that means to combine things. Right? So, syncretism, like right now on the kind of the the global mission scene, the biggest syncretistic controversy right now is Muslims that are coming to know the Lord, radically being born again, and then going to the mosques to pray three times a day, but they're praying to Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of Christians will say, well, that's great. What's the problem there? And then you have Christians wanting to throw the foul flag and say, no, 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 no. You can't do what looks like Islam. And have it, I mean, you're marrying two different things, and so they struggle with the combining. Syncretism is alive and well here in Knoxville. There's a lot of things we do syncretistically, and we don't even know it because it's a slow IV drip over time. Over time, this combination happens. Over time, pluralism starts to give you ideas and give something else preeminence with Christ, right? Think of, uh, think of a couple of examples. Think of the prosperity gospel. Okay, prosperity gospel is it's it's less about Christ and what he did on the cross it's more about you and what you can get how you can increase and how you can keep it right which are basic business models you'll see a lot of business philosophy built into it prosperity gospel can be quite formulistic Do this more, and you will get more. Do this less, and you will lose less, right? And less of it has to do with anything that Jesus Christ ever did, right? That's that's an overlapping of business, you know, just the, the Western world, capitalism and business, with Christianity. So we don't have a preeminent Christ anymore. We have moved something up and moved Him down a shelf. That's syncretism. It happens. Feminism gospel, it happens too. And now we're printing up Bibles that take all the masculinity out of anything that's deity. God is no longer He. Christ is no longer He. It's either an it or a she. Why are we doing that? Because there's a feminism that is alive and well, saying that we demand equality, we demand a voice. We think it's sexist to have God be a man. And that's syncretism. That's secret. Now you've moved Christ down from his preeminence, and you move something else up. Do You see how this is working? And some of it's very slight. Some of it seeps in and you don't even know it. I've got things in my life that I have to look at and go, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I have to remember that Jesus Christ is preeminent even even over this, even over good things. I talk about mission all the time. In fact, I think that's probably the first time I've said it today, so I've done really good today. I've only said mission once today and it was just now, but I'm usually really a geek about it. Mission, 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 mission. But Jesus Christ is still preeminent. He's still even above that. He's he's above his own story, which we see at the very beginning of Colossians. I think we'll do that next week. Like an IV drip, we introduce things that take center stage, and we make Christ subservient to those things, what Christ has done. So the why behind Colossians is the why for us. And we talked about a few weeks ago, when you read a passage in the Bible, don't just look at what it says, look at why it says Right? It's not just about exegeting it out, drawing it out, and trying to figure out what it says. Ask yourself, why was it written? What was it addressing? What were the circumstances? It's very important in how you understand a passage. Right? So, the why behind Colossians is the why for us. What are we doing as a corporate church right now? Ask yourself this. As a church, I have to ask myself this for you a lot. What are we doing as legacy church that is making Christ not so preeminent anymore? What is making him prominent, but not ultimate? Where is he not king and total king overall? I have to do this. Where is he sharing with something else? Where is Jesus Christ in his reign sharing with something else? I love this is what Warren Weersby says. This is so for us today. He says, Our evangelical churches are in danger of deluding the faith in their loving attempt to understand the beliefs of others, mysticism, legalism, Eastern religions, asceticism, man-made philosophies, all of that is creeping into the churches today. They are not denying Christ, but they are dethroning Him, and they are robbing Him of His rightful place of preeminence. He's speaking to us today. He may be prominent, but He is definitely not preeminent. It's so easy to slip into that as a church. It can be very easy for us to do that. To put something else up there. We're the community church. Everything's about community. Community group here. Community group there. Missional community. Blah, 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 blah. Or we're the missions church. Or we're the the college church. We're the homeless people church. Or we're whatever. We could put whatever label. But unless we are the Jesus Christ church first, unless that is first, we're saying something else might possibly be preeminent. That's something we have to guard for. Not even corporately, but, but what about you individually? This is harder now. Where is Christ not king? Where is He sharing? Where is He not so preeminent anymore? Where is He preeminent? He is the most important thing for you. The fact that God would enter broken humanity where you're cracked and you cannot be fixed. Coming in, putting on skin to be the only fix for you. The only cure for mankind's cancer. The only thing that can fix us is by His Passionate replacement for our passionate disobedience. That's what the cross was. And as He did that, that then and there becomes our identity, who we are, and our very importance. If we slip and make that not so preeminent, something else there, you're drifting without an anchor. And it's just going to be a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Before your formula quits working, before your little thing, your little crutch that you're leaning on starts to slip out from underneath you, and you find yourself on wobbly feet, Tolleanchevion says whenever you add something to Jesus Christ it always equals nothing. He says it a lot more in you know, a lot better than I do. But to rob Christ of his preeminence is to add something to him. To add something to him. And we can do that. I can do that. I did that for years. I used to say Jesus Christ is king, but macroevolution is still true. We still came from the precursor of an ape, you know. Just so you know, a side note: never tell someone who's an evolutionist that, "Hey, I don't think we came from apes." They don't believe that either. They think that we came from the same ancestor, right? A precursor ape, I guess. All right. That way you you won't offend them as much, I guess. But, but what I'm saying is, is I used to say that as a young man because why? Because Christ was prominence, but he wasn't preeminence. Evolution was still very prominent for me, and so God can still be God, but I mean, we still got here from evolutionary facts. Still, still is what it is. It's very easy for that to seep in. Jesus is king, but I still need to earn his favor. I still need to behave right or perform right, which is saying that his performance as behavior wasn't enough. That's legalism. Now that's syncretistic. Now you've let legalism drip in like an IV. Now Christ isn't as prominent anymore. Now you've increased works and behavior, right? Now they're on the same shelf. Jesus is king, but other religions are true as well well, that's wrong. That's pluralism. And now that's dripped in like an IV. Right? Jesus is king, but same-sex marriage doesn't hurt anyone. You can go on and on and on. That's humanism dripping in. Right? It was brought in that you started to adhere to. Jesus is king, but there's always something you're adding. If you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, there are things that we're adding to Jesus Christ that are pulling him down from the top shelf and putting something up on the same shelf with him. And it takes hard questions. And we're going to go into this. Now, Paul addresses a lot of the areas. Jesus is king over his own gospel. He's king over the church. He's preeminent over your family, over your kids, over your career, over your employment, over your ideas, over your philosophy, over creation. He's preeminent over it all. And bite by bite by bite, he tears it down for us. And what you'll see, if you look in Colossians, you'll start to repent in your heart. As I have. Jesus, you're right. You're bigger than this. You're more preeminent than this. I mean, this is pretty cool, but, and this is big, and this is important, but you are more important. You are more preeminent. It's a big difference. And so I'm going to pray over you, and they're going to come up, and they're going to lead us through the last couple songs of worship. Coral, I moved your stuff, and I don't know where I put it. I'm sorry i 'm known for that um, I think it 's over there on the floor so the way the way that we 've been doing this and the way that we 'll do this today as well is we have our communion elements over here, okay so if you want to take communion with your family, you want to take communion with your roommate, you want to pray with them. Just take it. All the communion means to us is something very important. It's a visual worship. It's a visual gospel for us. As we hold broken body, what symbolizes broken body and spilt blood on our hands, we're able to say to God through not just our prayer, but just through an action that Jesus Christ, we love you. And we understand that when we take this, that your gospel was really true, it really meant what it meant, and it fixes all of my problems. Even the one that I had cosmically, which is the fact that I declared war against you and you healed me even though I didn't deserve it. It's a visual gospel for us. So as you pray that over your family, as you respond to it, and you can do it anytime you want at any point in the service, but I just want to encourage you again to let God finish His work that He has started. As if He started pushing on anything, as we get deeper into Colossians, it will happen more and more. As He starts moving some big boulders around on your inside, as He starts doing that, don't try to escape that. That's his very kind, surgical and loving hands trying to help you, trying to lead you, okay? So Father, I thank you for this time that we take communion, that we worship with you as a church. Father and I thank you for being preeminent. I thank you for demanding that top shelf. and anytime I try to move you down, something something is going to give way. Anytime I try to move that down and make you just prominent and not preeminent that's going to be a problem. That that crutch will start to slip out from underneath me. And I thank you, God, that you've made your story as such that your cross and your passion on it is the apex of all of human history. And we can look at that, that we do have an anchor. Lord, we love you. Help us see the very things in our life, God, that we have shifted up as we have shifted you down. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you. As we stand, as we worship You, we celebrate Your name. Amen.